Everyone has Bible questions. Unfortunately, many don't know where to turn to find answers. Are you ready to face the truth? Face the Truth Live is the monthly podcast from the Truth Church of Olathe, Kansas, with our pastor and Bible teacher, Bishop Gregory Riggin. Welcome to all who have joined us for this Face the Truth Live event. We have people attending this event in person in the Fellowship Hall of the Truth Church and people who are joining online. We thank you for your attendance at this live monthly event. In this episode, Bishop Riggin will answer challenging questions about faith, spirituality, and the Bible. Taking a deep dive into the questions submitting by you, our insightful and curious listeners. We will be guided by the timeless wisdom of scriptures and the profound insights of Bishop Riggin. Together, we will seek to clarify the truths that shape our faith and shed light on the mysteries that often perplex our hearts and our minds. Our aim is to explore the depths of the Bible, navigating through its sacred passages to find the answers that resonate with truth. With an open heart and sincere desire for understanding, we'll delve into these thought-provoking questions and strive to reach a deeper walk with God. With that, we want to jump into the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. We welcome you as Bishop and Brother Hilton. We are joined here on Face the Truth Live. We have several questions that have been provided to us. We're coming back for another installment of this. We were back in February, last time we had this round of questions that were submitted by our listeners. And we're back again to answer some remaining questions that are yes. out there. So Bishop, would you like for me to kick it off with the first question? Do you have any opening remarks? Yeah, I have an opening remark. Um, you wouldn't put any pressure on a guy, would you? <laughs> the way you opened this whole segment with with these profound insights that I'm going to come up with. and That, that sounded uh, like Chad GPT. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He is our pastor after all. Uh, I'm telling you that uh, it just, I, I could just feel the pressure coming down on me that I, I better have something really profound here uh, to answer these questions. So having said that, let's get started. All right. So the first question came to us. And it says, during your teaching on tithing, you mentioned that God's moral law remains unchanged. You also emphasize that the Ten Commandments are part of this moral law. Considering that observing the Sabbath law, Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments, do you believe it still holds as a binding practice for the church today? Okay. Um, of course, to begin with, I, I can't help but think that maybe I should take a few minutes and talk about tithing, but, but I won't. Uh, I'll leave that alone for the sake of our listeners who did not hear my lessons on tithing, then, then this question probably doesn't, um, doesn't make complete sense to them. They don't understand what we're talking about here. One of the things that I bring out in teaching on tithing People say that tithing was under the law. And so I've shown how that in the scripture, you really have to understand that, that there were three sets of laws that were given to the 
um, Jewish people. There were three sets of laws. And, and as you read through the uh, law in the Old Testament, you've got to understand that each of these specific laws falls under one of three categories. It's, it is all the law, but it's really divided into categories that what you have is you have some laws pertain to the civil nature of the Jews. In other words, they're becoming a nation of people. And as a nation, they've got to have civil law. Um, they've got to have laws that govern crime and punishment, uh, laws about how to take care of widows and orphans, um, things that would affect and impact their lives as a nation, just like we in America have civil laws. Uh, we have laws that set traffic speeds, and you know there, there are just there are certain things that we are bound to under civil law, governmental law. And so there are certain things within the law of Moses that fit under that category. They are part of the civil law. That civil law does not apply to us because we are not a part of the Jewish nation. And so that's why you read through Deuteronomy, you see that certain things they were not to do, certain things they were to do. For instance, uh, it was said that if a man committed adultery, uh, if, if, if you caught a man or woman in adultery, you put them to death. Right. Well, why don't we do that today? Well, I'll tell you why. Because that was a part of their civil law. For them as a nation, we're not bound by that law today. That's not who we are. We're not the Jewish nation. The second category of laws, they had a ceremonial law that impacted their religion. So the animal sacrifices. Why don't we offer sacrifices today? Well, we don't offer sacrifices because we're not a part of the Jewish faith. Not a part of the Jewish religion. And, and these laws, the, the, the feast days. I've had people say, why, why is it that the church would celebrate the resurrection of the Lord and we don't celebrate Passover? Well, the reason we don't is because the feast days were a part of the ceremonial law of the Jewish religion. And we're not in that religion today. So we're not bound by the ceremonial law. But the third category of law was the moral law. And the moral law speaks to God's morality. What God loves and what God hates. And, and the things that are a part of the moral law existed before Moses. And, and people were bound by them before Moses, such as, thou shalt not kill. Long before that was ever etched in stone on Mount Sinai, right. Cain was punished right. for committing murder. Because that's a part of God's morality. See, God is the original source of life. And God expects us to protect life, not take it. In fact, that's one of the highest laws when you study the Scripture, the protection of human life. 
this is one reason why I don't want to get too sidetracked, but that's one, reasons why, one of the reasons why self-defense is, is allowable. Right. It's allowable because God wants us to protect human life. And you brought this up on abortion as well. Absolutely right. That's, that's why we're opposed to abortion. That's the taking of a human life. Right. And we have an obligation to protect human life. So, so that's a part of God's morality. Thou shalt not lie. Right. That's a part of God's morality. That was before Moses. It continues after Moses. So those things that are a part of God's moral law are still binding on the church today because he said, I am the Lord, I change not. Whatever God loved in the past, he loves today. Whatever he hated in the past, he hates today. Right. His moral law is unchanging. It's been the same from the beginning. It will be the same when this world is over. And, and of course, I, I, I deal with the whole idea of Deuteronomy 22.5, where the Bible says it's an abomination for a man to wear a woman's garment or a woman to wear even what pertains to a man. Right. Why do we abide by that when we don't abide by other verses in that same chapter? Well, because when you look at the other verses, those verses either are a part of the ceremonial law or the civil law. But Deuteronomy 22.5 says this is an abomination to God. Right. This is something God hates. And so that makes it a part of God's moral law. So having said all that, the question that's asked, is while I was teaching on tithing, I stated, just as I have right now, that the Ten Commandments were a part of God's moral law. Therefore, God expected it before Moses, and God expects it after Moses. Right. Well, the problem is, one of the Ten Commandments is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath day is not Sunday. Right. Period. End of discussion. <laughs> Sunday is not the Sabbath day. There is nowhere in Scripture that Sunday is ever referred to as the Sabbath day. Sunday is called the Lord's day because that was the day of the week in which the Lord rose from the dead. And remember that the early church was 100% Jewish. And as Jews, they still went to synagogue on the Sabbath day. But they wanted their Christian services too. And so on the first day of the week, Paul said, you come together and you uh, bring your tithes into the storehouse. You, 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 you do these things. You lay aside as God's prospered you on the first day of the week. And, and the early church began worshiping on the first day of the week as the Lord's day as opposed to the Sabbath day that was clearly the seventh day and will always be the seventh day. It was on the seventh day that God rested, and God set it apart as a day of rest. So we can't change that. We don't come along and say, all right, the Sabbath is no longer Saturday. We don't have if the, the Ten Commandments are a part of God's moral law, and God's moral law is still binding on the church today, and God's moral law includes, remember, the Sabbath day to keep it holy, then doesn't that mean we are obligated to honor Saturday as our Sabbath and to keep it holy? Now, that's the question. 
is there an answer? Well, of course there's an answer. Um, I want to remind you that Jesus stressed over and over that it's important to keep the spirit of the law rather than just focusing on the letter of the law. This is where the Pharisees went wrong, is they would focus on the letter of the law and they missed the spirit of it. Isn't that what he said? I mean, time and again he rebuked them because he said, you say that you right. cannot do this, but look at what you're doing. Right. And, and uh, for example, you, you know, you... You say that a man cannot commit adultery, and that's what the law says. But yet, you look on a woman with lust in your heart. You've committed adultery with her already in your heart. And what Jesus was saying was, you've missed the spirit of the thing. If you get the spirit of the law, you don't have a problem keeping the letter of the law. But if you're just focused on the letter of the law, you won't keep the spirit of it. So, so 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, who also had made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. So, so understand that Jesus never made the moral law easier. If anything, he kicked it up a notch. By telling us we're bound by the spirit of it. And, and again, these, these examples, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21-22, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. Whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of the judgment. So, so see, Jesus didn't say, Okay, we're not under the law. So you don't have to worry about it. No, Jesus said, No, you don't kill your brother but you don't hate him either right you're killing him in your heart verses 27 28 you've heard it said by them of old time thou shalt not commit adultery i say unto you whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart mm -hmm. so so if you think that the new testament brought a lighter expectation Evidently, you've either never read or you don't understand the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Listen to this. Hebrews 10, verses 28 and 29. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Now, that was the law. That was the Old Testament law. Now, you'd think that the writer of the New Testament would say, Oh, but thank God we're under grace now. None of this even. But that's not what he said. Listen to what he says. Of how much sorer punishment hmm. suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. He didn't say how much easier it is now. Right. He said... Don't you think our punishment's going to be worse under grace than it was under the law? So, so listen, the same thing is true when it comes to keeping the Sabbath day holy. What was the purpose of the Sabbath day? 
Why was it instituted? It was a rest. day of rest. It was a day of rest. Right. Because on that day, God rested. Right. And so the Sabbath was a day of rest. rest. Now, with that in mind, consider the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the rest. Yes. Wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, this is the refreshing. <laughs> With stammering lips and another oh, tongue, yes. this is the rest. Yeah. So what is the rest in the New Testament church? Speaking in tongues. That's right. Receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Praying in the Spirit. Right. That's our spiritual rest today. And listen, the purpose of the Holy Ghost is to make us holy. Right. So for the church, it's not we have one day a week that we want to make holy. It's seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Right. 60 minutes in every hour. That's right. My, my, my. 365 days a year. We have the rest of the Holy Ghost, and we make every day holy. Right. Oh, that's so good. It's not a lighter thing under grace. It's a heavier thing under grace. Right. Boy, for the Jews, on that one day, you better have God in mind. You don't, you don't do work. You don't do... And again, they were just looking at the letter of the law. But the spirit of the law was, God wants you to be holy every day. And so he gives us this spiritual rest. And so as it was with the other parts of the moral law, the spirit of the law is still binding on us today. And it's actually more stringent under the new covenant than it was under the old. We find rest by staying full of the Holy Ghost. And we can only stay full of the Holy Ghost if we make every day holy. Right. That's my answer and I'm standing with it. Pastor, as you're talking, there was a, a thought that I had. Um, Revelation 1 and 10 says, I was in the Spirit. You said that the Lord's Day. Yes. Uh, that's what Sunday is. It's the Lord's Day, the day the Lord was resurrected. So uh, John was the first apostle to <laughs> kind of ch- keep the spiritual Sabbath on the Lord's Day rather than on. I don't know if he was the first. but No, he, he was not the first. In fact, the book of Revelation is one of the last, if not the last, books to be written. And Paul had already written to the Corinthians about coming on the first day of the week. Okay. And um, by the time that John is exiled to Patmos, it was already a common thing among the New Testament Christians to, to have their time of worship on the Lord's Day. And I think that's the reason why John got in the spirit on the Lord's Day. He's in exile now. He can't go to church anywhere. So since he can't get to church, he has church where he is. But he specifically did it on the Lord's Day. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So really, our observance of services on Sunday is not tradition. There is a biblical backing based upon that, right? Yes. 
yeah, it, it's and, and people criticize, you know, people's whatever. Um, it's Sunday, your worship. You know, come off of that because right. if, if you're going to do that, then you can't do it on Saturday either because that's Saturn Day. Mm. That's what the name actually means. So, so don't give me any of that. Right. We're, we're looking at this being the first day of the week, the day of the Lord's resurrection, the day of new beginnings. You're starting a new week. And so this is something that goes all the way back to the apostles. Their time of worship as Christians, getting together as Christians, is, is, is the earliest time. Of the apostles. Okay. Hmm. Praise God. If we go by that logic, you couldn't do it on any. No, day exactly right. Every day that we have is named after some God. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, which would be a good time to just say, so quit telling me about Christ mass. <laughs> but anyhow. <laughs> Pastor, you did that six months ago, and that's in six months. So, no, yeah, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Just threw that in free of charge, kind of snuck it in on everybody, but we don't worry about the name of the day. I mean, honestly, this is right. Uh, oh, my, my. Okay. Anyhow. You ready for the next question? Ready for question two. All right. Let's talk about it. Pastor came in. The question came in and says, Pastor, I came across two images that are commonly associated with Jesus, one with his hands palm out and the other depicting the crucifixion. The speaker asserted that these images were not representations of Jesus and considered having them idolatrous. They were also mentioned wearing a cross around the neck. And my question is, is there a definitive line between appropriate religious symbolism and idolatry? And in second to that, they also mentioned that they noticed there is not a cross on the wall at the True Church, and they want to know if, there was, if that was for a specific reason. Okay, good, good questions, good questions. Um, first of all, I, I don't even think that it's necessary that I spend a lot of time on this, but just for the sake of the discussion, just remind everybody, the Bible's very, very clear about graven images. Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And this is just one of many, many scriptures that contain a prohibition against idolatry. Um, and, and the problem, I think, is that some people think that unless you worship that image, it does not become an idol. And that can be debated as to whether it's an idol or not. I, I mean, look, I'm not throwing stones at our Catholic friends. But they have these icons, uh, statues of saints and different right. things, and they pray to these, and they venerate these, and, and yet they say they're not idols. They're not idols. Well, again, that, that can be debated. It, if you're praying to it and you're expecting it to give you answers, that sounds pretty idolatrous to me. But sure. But who am I? Um, just someone that spent five decades studying the Scripture, that's all. I, who am I? Um, regardless, regardless, 
Uh, I, I think there's another problem with most images of Jesus besides whether or not the image is actually being worshipped. And the problem is how Jesus is portrayed. Um, now, let me, let me say this. I don't have a problem with the emblem of a cross. And it does appear that the very early church used that symbol. There, there are places you can go uh, that have been uncovered archaeologically. They find that this was a place of worship in the early church, way back into the first century, that they would put the sign of the cross there to let others know this is a place where Christians are worshiping. Okay. And so there's nothing wrong with the, with the symbol itself. Um, now, as far as the cross around the neck, I have a problem with that, not because it's a cross, but because it's jewelry. And that's another lesson for another day, but the Bible's very clear, very clear, that, that um, jewelry is considered idolatry. The Bible's very clear on that subject. This is, this is one of those things that really, you can debate anything, obviously, but if you're going to be honest with the Scriptures, the fact is the Scriptures very clearly line out that jewelry is idolatry. And God sees it that way. So it's not about it being in the shape of a cross. It's about it being... Um, Jewelry that you're wearing. That's, that's the problem. Uh, as far as the truth church not having a cross on the wall, well, we used to. And, and many of the people that come now don't realize that. But, but the win there, there used to be a window behind the pulpit where we have the, the wall now. We put the screen. There was a huge window there. Right. And that window, it was actually four windows that were framed with a cross. Yep. And, and we covered it up, not because we didn't like the cross, but it was a couple of problems we had. One was the sun glaring in and blinding everybody when they're trying to look at who's standing behind the pulpit. And the other was a lot of water leaking in around it. Right. And so we, we got rid of it for that reason, but not because the cross itself is wrong. Um, but as I said earlier, the problem that I see with these portrayals of Jesus is, is how he is portrayed. Uh, many, many pictures of him, whether it's with his palms out or he's knocking at a door or he's holding a sheep or whatever. Honestly, most of these portray him as less than manly. They give him a very effeminate look. Right. That's a problem. Jesus was not effeminate. He single-handedly drove money changers out of the temple. <laughs> handled a whip. He handled it. He made the whip. Yes. He took a beating that would have killed most people. Right. And still walked. We, we walked part of the Via Dolorosa uh, when we were in Jerusalem. It's a long haul. Amen. <laughs> From where he was beaten to where he was hung Amen. on a cross. And he still made that trip. This was no sissy. 
In fact, when, when, when the Bible talks about Joseph, his earthly father, being a carpenter, what we think of, we always think of woodworkers. Right. But carpenters in the first century, many of them were, were also, uh, if not entirely, stonemasons. Yeah. They were considered carpenters. And, and it's very likely that Jesus grew up Moving boulders around, chipping rocks. That's a man's man. That's a man's man. Right. And yet they paint him as this sissified, right. long-haired. Right. Frail, thin. Thin, no hair on his chest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just telling you the truth. Think about it. Every right, picture right. you see, he looks half woman. I've got a bigger problem with that right. than I do with anything else. I don't see that as a source of strength. Not, a, not at all. And furthermore, he didn't have long hair. Amen. That's a problem. And every picture I see uh, that they paint of Jesus, they give him long hair. 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen: Doth not nature itself even teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? Yes. Right. The Apostle Paul wrote those words, it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Right. That was in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Just two chapters later, Paul said that he had seen the Lord. So in chapter 9, he said, I saw the Lord. In chapter 11, he said, it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Why would he say it's a shame if the Lord he saw had it? Right. Jesus did not have long hair. All right? So these pictures that are painted of Jesus, the way they paint him is more of a problem for me than the fact that they've got a picture of him. And, and I could go on. There's so many things that, that they've just got him depicted in, in the wrong way. Um, but, but to get back to the cross, here's, here's one of the things, while we had a cross here, one of the things we do not have, will never have, is, is some statue or depiction of Jesus on the cross. I'm thankful that he went to the cross. But I'm telling you, to, to put up a statue of him on the cross is to forever immortalize him at his weakest moment in human form. Are you understanding what I'm telling you? As, as a man, as a man, when he was on the cross, that was the weakest moment he ever felt. And why do we want that moment to be the snapshot? Right. You know, I, I've, I've known of people whose loved ones were dying and, and maybe they're they're. they're dying with some dread disease and loved ones have said I don't want to even walk in that hospital room because I don't want that to be the image that's burned into my memories to right. see them in that frail condition I want to remember them strong and healthy and well why do we want to hang Jesus on the cross forever right right why do we want to perpetually crucify him right I'm thankful for the cross I will cherish the old rugged cross I'm thankful that he went to the cross. 
Right. He bore my shame. He bore my sin. But I'm not going to perpetually show him as a dying Christ. Right. Even though it required his death for us to have redemption, the fact is without the resurrection, his death became meaningless. That's a big statement, but I didn't make it up. The Apostle Paul said at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, If Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Right. Ye are yet in your sins. That's what he said. Yes, Christ died, but if he didn't rise from the dead, nothing we're doing right. is even valid. Amen. Hmm. It's all wasted. Thank God for the cross. Thank God for the death and the burial. But you know how we need to immortalize Him? You know how we need to, to forever picture Him? Not as a suffering Savior, no. but as a risen Savior. Alive. Right. That He is alive today and well. And that's the way we need to see Him. Not the suffering Savior, but the risen Redeemer. Right. Let that be the image you have of Him in your mind. So that's my problem with these pictures of Jesus. Right. Um, not whether his palms are out or uh, whether he's knocking on a door, but it's all these other things that, that bother me about that. I, I just want to think of him in his glory and his power right. and his resurrection right. and the fact that he overcame death, hell, and the grave. Right. And you can't... You can't put symbols on you and think that you're putting on Christ. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I said this many years ago. It's not the cross you wear around your neck that makes you a Christian. It's the cross you put on your back. Right. Exactly. It's good. And, and I don't mean a physical symbol. I mean, taking up your cross and following him. Yes. In our service tonight, Brother Larson preached about uh, clinging to the cross and, and taking up your cross. And, and, and listen, that's the real key to a truly Christian life is, is bearing that cross, not displaying it, but burying it. Right. Putting yourself on the cross, not putting the cross on you. Right. Yes, sir. That's the key. Amen. Amen. Ready for the next one? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. So the question came in. says, during the Last Supper, Jesus instructed his disciples to buy swords, which appears counterintuitive, given that he also spoke about the certainty of his crucifixion, that this is written that, um, that, this, that it is written, must ye better be, be yet accomplished in me. And he's wanting to know if you can shed some light on the purpose behind the command to buy two swords, and the significance represented by Jesus. Okay. So um, you referenced a little bit of, of the conversation that went on. Let's, let's read Luke chapter 22, verses 30. Um, I'm not sure what verses these are. I've, I've got it. Uh, anyhow, it's Luke chapter 22. 35 through 38. 35. Um, I think I've just got down 35 and 36 right here. Then said he unto them, But now 
He that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip. He that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, our two, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it is enough. So, so the question then is, why did Jesus tell them to sell their garments and go buy swords? And, and then the follow-up to that is, they said, we've got two. There were 12 of them. 11, Judas has walked out, and they got two swords among 11 men. Is there a, a significance for these two swords? So, first of all, let me, let me just again stress to everybody that you should always pay close attention to the wording of the Scripture. Because it's easy to assume there's a message there that is not there. I believe that God chose every word carefully. I believe every scripture is divinely inspired, word for word. And so we need to look at these scriptures and take them into consideration. So, I want to point out to you that verse 35 opens with a contrast. All right? If, if, if you're looking at your Bible, if you can pull it up there, if you've got your Bible with you, if you've got your phone, pull it up and look at it. He opens verse 35. The Lord's statement opens, Luke 22, verse 35, with a contrast. What does he say? What are his first two words? Anybody? Has anybody got when it? I, uh, 2235 says, and he said unto them, when I sent you without a purse. Okay. Um, is that 35? That's 35. Right, 36. What's 36? Okay. 36 says, then said he unto them. Yeah, that's it. That's what I'm looking for. Verse 36. But now he that hath a purse. He that hath a purse. Let him take it. All and right. Now, first of all, what are the first two words? But now. But now. But now, notice the contrast. So he's saying, there was something back here. But now, okay, I'm telling you this. So he's drawing a clear contrast. Now, what is the contrast? What is he talking about? He's showing that there is something different about that particular moment that has changed. Something has changed from what it once was. All right, so in verse 35 is where he said to them, when I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked you anything? And they said nothing. Right. So verse 35, he says, you remember back there, I sent out the 12, and in fact, uh, we can go over to Matthew chapter 10. Let's do that real quick. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. The twelve, these twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any of the cities of Samaritans enter ye not. Verses 9 and 10, Provide neither gold, nor silver, nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his hire. 
So, so when Jesus sends them out this time, he clearly says to them, don't take anything. Don't make any provisions whatsoever. Right. When he sent them out that time, don't do anything. Now, he's teaching them in that moment, I want you to learn to trust in me. Right. I want you to believe that I can take care of you. So that was his instruction. And how many times have I said, anytime God gives you instruction, you stay with that instruction until he tells you something different. Right. Right. Well, this is that until. So he had given them instruction in the beginning. You just go out there. Don't worry about anything. Don't try to provide for yourself. I'm going to take care of you when you're out there. So now we get back to the passage in Luke 22. And, and he says in verse 35, you remember when I sent you out with nothing? Right. He said, did you lack anything? And they said, no, Lord, nothing. You took care of us. Then the next words out of his mouth are, but now. Hmm. Now, I, I taught you a lesson back then. But now things are changing. Now it's about to get bad. Hmm. Because the hatred for him is escalating. Right. And that's going to be spread to his followers. And they're going to be facing this hatred. When he sent them out the first time, they were representatives of the healer, the provider. And they're going out there healing and they're providing. Right. Now, he's the one that's challenged their religion. (laughs) And now they hate him. And he's saying to them, back then, you went out, you didn't need anything, everything was taken care of. But now, you better make some preparations. Because, boys, it's about to get bad. Hmm. So you better, you better know that now, not only am I about to be put to death, but you men are going to face it too. Hmm. And so I'm telling you now, you, you, better, you better have some provisions. You'd better make some plans. Hmm. Fact, he says, you really need some self-defense. Now, that blows a lot of people's minds. <laughs> Obviously, when it came to the garden, Peter pulled out the sword, and Jesus said, no, 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 no. You live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. You know, it, it still, it wasn't time for all of that. But Jesus was making it clear to these men at this time, there's nothing wrong with self-defense. Right. There's nothing wrong with self-defense. You men are going to be facing it. And furthermore, there are wild animals out there. You know, I mean, they're, they're walking sometimes through, through untamed territory. And you're going to need not just defense against men. You may need defense against wild beasts. Right, right. And, and so, guys, it doesn't hurt to carry a sword. I know that the liberals and the woke crowd <laughs> cannot imagine Jesus telling people to buy swords. But he did. And, and 
Uh, Peter probably bought a Glock. I don't know. <laughs> a Glock 238 is what he uh, had. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, my. <laughs> so, so he's telling them, now is a different time than it was then. You really do need to make some plans and make some preparations and take care of yourself. Because it's just not going to be the way it was before. Now, so what's the deal with two swords? Well, you know, I've, I've heard people say, well, the, the Bible is the sword. Um, Ephesians 6.17 calls the Bible the sword of the Spirit. Right. Uh, Hebrews 4 and 12 says that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. So I've heard people say that the two swords... When Jesus said that's enough, the two swords, that represented the New Testament and the Old Testament. And that's what he meant by two swords. Uh, I think that's kind of stretching it myself. if, If you believe that, fine. I can't prove that's not the case. I just have a hard time proving it is the case. But what I would again cause you to do is to go back and read what Jesus said. They said... Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it is enough. He didn't say, that is enough. He didn't say, they are enough. He said, it is enough. Now, to understand the point that I'm trying to make, let me me read to you from one commentator. He said that, that um, this phrase perhaps means simply enough has been said. I've said all I'm going to say about it. Okay. We're going to change the subject now. I've got more important things to talk to you about. You'll understand it better by and by. Hmm. It's enough. I'm done. So like end of discussion. End of discussion. Okay. It's enough. You, you, you make your provisions. You take care of yourself. But Lord, look what we got. I'm through talking. Hmm. You'll learn. You'll see. It'll all come to light when the time comes. That had to have impacted their ministry because, like you said, going from miracles, people following them, now there's angst. They go into a city. Are they received or not? They may have to go outside of a well-known area and sleep, have provision. So it wasn't always being received like they were. They had to change their ministry. It, it feeling had. rejected, feeling that instead of like they're coming, they're here. Yes. And just that pushing away. Yes. And, and no doubt that's part of the reason why the Lord allowed them to see such a profitable time in the beginning. is So right. they could hang on to that. And remember... Look, God took care of us back there. He'll yes. take care of us here, too. My, my. He's going to see us through this difficult time. Right. And he provided. We, we had absolutely nothing, and he provided. Yeah. So he'll provide again. And it yeah. taught them how to trust in him. But, yes, it had to have changed their perspective on a lot of things. Right. My, my. So hopefully that answers the question. Hopefully that that helps you to understand what Jesus was saying 
end this whole discussion. Just go ahead and make some plans, make some preparations. Don't just fly by the seat of your britches now. You did it before at my direct command, but now is a different time. Yeah. And so, you know, this is, this is like I, I tell young preachers, you don't just get up behind the pulpit and say, God's going to fill my mouth. Right. In fact, how many times have you men heard me say you should come to church every service with a message? Right. Because you don't know when I'm going to call on you, <laughs> so you just come prepared. That's right. You always prepare. You prepare. You prepare. You prepare. And, and I think that's what the Lord's saying. You've had your time. I showed you in the beginning. I can take care of you when it's necessary. But I don't want you just going out there unprepared, all the time. I want you to make preparation just knowing in the back of your mind that when the time comes, if you need me, I'll be there. Oh, my. That's good. May I ask a follow-up on yes. kind of this point here? You're talking about, uh, you know, in opposite in opposition to the original um, sending where, you know, he didn't send them with purse. He didn't send them with script um, on their own. But in this case, he's saying, now prepare. Um it sounds like to me that they're latching on to that. Okay, Lord, here's two swords. And then his response to that is, is, is that it is enough. Is that him trying to kind of taper down their, um, you know, being overzealous with preparation or, or, or not? Is that not how you interpret it? Do you have some other idea? Of what well, like I said, I, I, I tend to think that he's just saying, you're going to understand more about okay. this when the time comes. But it is possible that knowing, especially men like Simon Peter and then sons of he's saying and the sons of thunder and he's saying all right go get your sword okay let's yeah, go let's arm go. ourselves that's what I was Let, let's let's yeah. see if we can find some AR <laughs> as as the president said AR-14s <laughs> and uh, I was just curious what your thought was about whether he was bringing balance to the conversation by just saying okay let's just move well on. that's that's possible too I think, but I, I personally think the biggest part of the balance was simply him saying, I've said all about that that I'm going to say right now. Let's move on. I've got another topic we yeah. want to discuss. I see. Speak, speaking of which. Speaking of which. <laughs> <laughs> you beat me to it, Bishop. All right. I got nine minutes left. One more question. One more question. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Another question pertains to the distinction between telling the truth and making a lie. When Jesus said, not a stone will be left upon this temple, and yet I will build it again in three days, some have questioned whether he was intentionally misleading or making a false statement. Could you provide insight into the deeper meaning of Jesus' words in this context? All right. So, to begin with, we know that Jesus was not telling or making a lie. And we know that because of a couple of very specific scriptures. First of all, Revelation 22.15 says that anyone who makes a lie will not enter heaven. Right. So how's Jesus not going to make it to heaven? Right, right. So we know that. And then secondly, Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 9.28, let us know that he was without sin. But listen to 1 Peter 2.22. Peter says, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth now interestingly the word guile means subtlety or deceit 
So Peter said he did no sin, and there was never any, even anything deceptive that came out of his mouth. So, so whatever is going on with this conversation, Jesus is not being deceptive. He's not telling a lie. He's not making a lie. He's not in any way being deceptive. So I think everybody would say, well, yeah, we, we know that. But, but look, let's be honest. How then do we reconcile the fact that he says not one stone's going to be left upon another? And he says, I'm going to raise this temple up in three days. How do we rectify those two things? Well, again, let's look to the Scripture. Matthew 24, verse 2, Jesus said unto them, that is, unto his disciples. Now, the setting of Matthew 24. In fact, let's just back up to verse 1. Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. So have you got this, the, the, the scenario? Jesus and his disciples are standing outside the temple complex. One of the things you're going to understand when we go on our trip to Jerusalem, which is a good, a good time for a shameless plug, we still have a few vacancies left on our trip to Israel if anybody wants to go with us in, in June of next year. Uh, but one of the things you're going to see is the Western Wall, which stood in Jesus' day. Um, but, but so many times we think of the temple, we just strictly think of the one building. But, but the term temple actually, in many verses, applied to the temple complex. There was a whole area that was, that was encased with a wall. And there were courtyards within that area and buildings inside that area besides just the temple itself. And so this is what the Bible says. His disciples are showing him the buildings, plural, of the temple. So, again, the, the setting, Jesus and his disciples standing outside the temple complex. They're looking specifically at the structures, the, build, the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them in verse 2, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, we, we don't even understand what a big statement that was. But I promise you, you get to Jerusalem and you see those stones that were thrown down. That was a massive undertaking. Hmm. For the Romans to do what they did, I'm talking about mm -hmm. massive, massive stones that weighed tons. Wow. But Jesus said, not one stone is going to be left upon another. Now, he's looking at the temple complex. And he's talking about the temple itself. Then... We go to John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, 
What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. So first of all, the question conflates two separate incidents. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to raise this temple in three days. At the same time, he said, not one stone's going to be left upon another. Right. Two different settings. He's talking to two different groups. The first one, he's talking to his disciples about the actual physical buildings. Sure. The second one, he's talking to the Jews about his own body. Right. And so he's not misleading them. He's not, he's not in any way lying to them or making a lie to them because he's not saying to them that every stone's going to be thrown down in this conversation. He's saying, you're going to destroy the temple, but in three days I'm going to raise it up. Now, he, he, again, if, if he was talking about the physical temple, he got it wrong because the Jews didn't destroy that temple. The Romans did. Right. But the Jews were responsible for destroying the temple of his body. That's right. Hmm. And so he was very clear. And, and from all that I've read, it appears to me that the Jews understood this whole concept of your body being a temple of God. They, they un, that, that was a common thought to them. So for Jesus to use this terminology that you destroyed this temple, and I'm going to tell you, um, I just personally... I can't prove this, but to me, I kind of see Jesus pointing to himself when he says it. Guys, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, the Jews were looking for some reason to condemn him. Right. They wanted to twist his words. So they come back then and say, it took 46 years to build the temple. Well, he didn't say the temple. And I think they knew that. Right. But they wanted to trip him up. They wanted to catch him in his words. And they even tried to use that against him at his trial. But he knew well what he was saying, and I believe they knew well what he was saying and what he meant. Though they no doubt went around quoting him and taking it out of context. Sure. But, but there was in no way that he was trying to be deceptive in what he said. Right. So hopefully that answers the question. Um, let me say one more thing about it. I've only got less than a minute. And you had another follow-up question you I wanted do. to do. But, but let, me, let me say this about that. Think about this. He says, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. Now... When did he say that? John 2, verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said to him, What sign showest thou unto us? So that was their question. Show us a sign so we can believe. Right? And what he says to them, here's the sign. Destroy this temple and I'm going to raise it in three days. How is that any different from what he said in Matthew 12, verses 38 to 40? Listen to this. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, but there shall no sign be given it 
but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Isn't that saying the same thing? They said, we want to see a sign. He said, the sign's going to be the resurrection. So in John chapter 2, the Jews said, show us a sign. And he said, the sign's going to be the resurrection. He's saying the same thing. Right. right. Just in a different way. But it's the same exact message both times. He's, he's telling them, this is what's going to happen. Okay. And, and it wasn't a, an attempt to deceive them because, remember, even his apostles didn't get it. You know, he did a lot of things in parables. And even to this day, how many things in the Scripture does he say that, as I've said, when it comes to prophecy, some things we're just not going to understand until after the fact. And why God does it, I think he does it just to show us he's smarter than we are. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm, I'm a minute over. So I've used my time. So if you guys want to take longer than an hour, I'm on your time now. I have one follow-up question. Okay. So you talked about how Jesus cannot lie. Is it possible or permissible for, I know it's possible, is it permissible for us to lie? Are we allowed to tell white lies in that preservation of life, preservation of job, things along those, that scenario, such as you have, and we had this question in our ACBS, so shout out to my alumni. We had the question, Jews are hidden in your house, Nazis come to your door, and they say, do you have Jews in your home? How do you answer? Are you allowed to tell a lie to preserve life? Or are you required to tell the truth? Now, that seems extreme, but it kind of sets a precedent. So is that permissible? What is the correct answer? They come to the door and say, do you have Jews hidden in your house? The correct answer is, no spricken sie Deutsch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if that's the right way to say it. I, I don't know German. I don't know. I don't know how you say I don't know German. But a resident of Josh. Yeah, yeah. Where's Josh. Hat? Where's, we need him. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I I don't know how you say that in German, but that's the answer. Oh, don't speak German. What are you saying? Uh that's a quick and easy route. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good question. And, of course, people point to the Hebrew midwives. Right. Who made claim that these, these Hebrew women are just so strong. and I mean, they have babies, and they're just up and going. We don't even have time to put the babies to death. And they've got the baby, and they're out of the house. Was that really a lie, though? I mean, could they have just taken their time knowing the process, the natural process? Well, if they'd taken their time, that would still be, they're knowingly taking their time. Well, we've got to let the audience in on the story here. <laughs> so this came up in Sunday school this morning, and Brother Goff has a different answer than I do on this question. And so that's why we're posing it. So Pastor. I'm bowing out, and I'm going to let the two of you. All right. No, that's why we asked you, so we can, we can reconcile as brethren. What does the Bible say about lying, Bishop? Am I right or is Brother Goff right? 
<laughs> so finish your story. Sunday school, the question came yeah, up. Yeah, Sunday school came up, uh, and, and my answer was absolutely. You say it was exactly the same story. I, I gave the story of the Nazis in okay. asking about the Jews. Uh, There's se- several other examples as well, but that was one that came up. And, and I, absolute, I, I would say absolutely yes. Um, if, if you knew that telling them that they were not present would preserve their lives or uh, you know, whatever, um, just putting us in that ideological corner. If, if I were to say no and it would save their life, then I would justify saying no, that there's nobody else here because I'm preserving their life. I think the value of life is greater than that. So, um, You know, one of the things that, that I have tried to teach is um, you have to understand the hierarchy of law. That there are laws that are higher than other laws. And, and when two laws conflict, and, and this is something that's taught in the Midrash, it's taught... In the Talmud, it's, it's, the Jews taught this for centuries. That when two laws conflict, you have to decide which law best serves God's purpose. Which is the higher of the two laws. And you appeal to that law. So then it boils down to, is it a higher law that thou shalt not bear false witness? Or is it a higher law to preserve life? Which is the higher of the two laws? And whatever is the higher of those two laws is the one you have to fall back on. Now, I, I say that with all caution because I certainly do not want to give the impression that we can get by with dishonesty. I, I don't want to give that impression. You remember, we've criticized Abraham for telling Sarah, tell him that you're my sister. Right. But remember why he said it. He's saying to her, my life's in danger. Your purity is in danger. And so, we, there's a really loud cricket chirping. <laughs> um, So he's saying to Sarah, my life's in danger. Your purity is in danger. And so in this instance, though we know God does not approve of dishonesty, we've got no choice. Now, here's the problem with that logic. God took care of the situation. Right. Right. And, And God... 
gave Abimelech a dream. Sure did. And protected Sarah. So when Abraham tried to rationalize all of this, he took God completely out of the equation. But, but I use the example to show you this has been the Jewish mindset. Is there is this hierarchy among the laws of God. And you always appeal to the higher law. And to them, the, the higher of these two laws is the protection of human life. In fact, because life is the direct gift of God. It's something that man cannot create. This is the touch of God in every human being. This is how we are created in the image of God. God puts life in. He breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. Right. God's breath became our breath. So, protecting life became the highest law. And, and that's why, for these midwives, they're protecting innocent life. It's why they, and I'm not, again, I, I just want to be careful because in a discussion like this, it can really easily get very confusing and people start thinking that, okay, a lie is a lie is a lie, so I can... I can fudge on this. I can be dishonest about that. I can, right. That, that, and, and that's not at all what I'm even trying to imply here. All I'm saying is if it is a matter literally of life and death, not even a matter. I'm not talking about imprisonment. We're not talking about. We're talking about life and death. Right. If it's a matter of life and death, then you appeal to the higher law. And, look, I, I've used this very thing, in fact, in dealing with, like, a, a tubal pregnancy. Because you defend life. Right. And, and if the mother is pregnant, we're against abortion. We are against abortion. We don't believe in abortion. But if the mother's life is honestly in danger, and this... And having, carrying this pregnancy to term is going to kill the mother. Then the child is threatening the mother's life. And it becomes no different than an intruder breaking into the home and threatening the life of your family. And you protect the mother's life against the intruder. Do you right. understand? Yes, I'm, not in, I'm not condoning abortion. Right. I'm promoting the protection of life. And when one life threatens another, you protect the threatened. Right. Against the threat. So I'm not trying to condone dishonesty or lying in any way. I'm only saying if it's truly a matter of life and death then you're going to have to search your conscience and answer the question, which of these is the highest law right. for me? Right. Because you're going to answer to God for that. 
you're going to stand before God and give God an answer as to why you did what you did. If you tell them, yes, there are Jews in my house. And look, it may not be Jews. We may be facing this question with Christians. Sure can. We, we may be at a point where they come in and say, is your, is your wife a believer? Mm-hmm. Right. If she is, we're killing her right now. And, and so we may be faced with this thing, this, this kind of question somewhere down the road. Sure. And we're going to have to know in our minds, we've got to live with whatever decision we make, and we're going to answer to God for whatever decision we make. And if your conscience says to you, it's the higher law to protect their life, then you appeal to that and you live with it and you face God with it. If your conscience says to you the higher law is honesty, then you appeal to that. You do it. You live with it. You answer to God for it. Okay. So basically you want to hide at Brother Hilton's house is what we're saying. Not mine. So everybody that's under threat, <laughs> run to Brother Hilton. But I actually because he doesn't mind. <laughs> while you were talking, you mentioned about the 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 law, the hierarchy of law, and my mind immediately jumped to Proverbs six. Yep, that's where I'm at. I actually saw that on Brother Cheat Weasel Goff's computer. <laughs> He's cheating on but the test. But I didn't see it until he not only lies, he cheats. <laughs> <laughs> until after recorded. let me finish <laughs> until after i had looked it up and then i was wait i was like wait a minute he's already there and so i don't want to i know this is kind of your deal here but i was just you know twice in the in the seven abominations god has highlighted oh, yes. um bearing false witness and a lying yes. tongue those two are clearly at the top of god's list yes yes so are we going to depend on the Jews' interpretation of the law? That's, and that's why I'm saying this is something that you're going to have to answer to God for. You know, I'm not going to sit here today and tell you that you've got to put your family's life at risk. Uh-huh. I'm saying to you, you better decide. You better weigh this out and have an answer in your heart and your mind and your spirit. Don't wait to decide when that moment comes. You better know. But you're exactly right. There are two things that God clearly says he hates. Now, shedding innocent blood is also in that list of things God hates. So the protection of life is there in that list. Lying tongue is before hands that shed innocent blood. Yes. <laughs> I'm just going by yeah. order here, I guess. I, that was, I was more of a joke than anything, but to make light of it. But that, it is to me, it, the gra- it's something that definitely needs to be grappled with. And yes, it is. It's something that, that, that you've got to weigh out, and you, you're going to have to make this a matter of prayer and search your conscience, and you're going to have to know what's right Uh, of course the first thing is a proud look um now you say lying's in there twice and it is but it's it's really two categories of lies Mm -hmm. because there's the lying tongue 
which is not just somebody who, who tells a lie, but it is a, an ongoing liar, a lying. Right. It's a content, somebody that just keeps telling lies. That's what God hates. Then there is he that bears false witness. Bearing false witness is a form of lying, but it's a specific form of lying. When you're bearing false witness, you're telling things about somebody else that are, that's not true mm-hmm. to their detriment. The whole term witness, you've got to remember, is a, is a court term. Mm-hmm. And so what he's saying is you're bringing damage on somebody else by the things you're saying about them. And that's what God hates, which ought to speak to every gossip oh, yes. in the world. And even, well, well, well this, is not, this is not a lie. This is true. Well, are you sure of that? Just because you've heard it doesn't make it absolutely the truth. I don't care where you heard it from. Somebody might have misunderstood. Sure. And the other thing is, if it's damaging someone's character, why would you even want to spread it? Why would you want to hurt somebody else? Why would you want to do damage to another person? So, yeah, it's, um, I'm kind of answering without answering here. But, but this is the answer, is that you've got to appeal to the higher law, and you've got to determine which of these two is a higher law. Is it protecting innocent life, or is it honesty at all times sure. and under all circumstances? Which of those is higher in God's eyes? Yeah. And I think... I agree. I think it's uh, when you start crossing lines, that's when lies become easier. I Absolutely. Think that's the other thing I weigh. If it's okay now, when's it not okay? When is it okay? Yes. yes. And I'd rather, I would rather maintain honesty and end my life like that instead of chancing it on, well, if I lie and they walk away versus I lie and they kill me and go look for themselves. And that's where I'm at. I'd rather yeah. end it with confidence yes. and, and let God take care of it. Yes. Because he will. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's one of the things that, and even we get back to the tubal pregnancies. When, when we start rationalizing things, mm-hmm. we've taken God out of the picture. Right. And, and we don't want to ever really do that. I mean, you know, it, it, it sounds kind of cheap to not just give an answer. But the fact of the matter is there's some things that you got to wait until that moment and you've got to pray and you've got to get a hold of God and you've got to find out, God, what do you want? What, what do you want in this situation? And, and not take it out of God's hands with our own human reasoning. And so, so the woman's life is threatened with this pregnancy. What do I do? Well, we can sit around and draw lines right. and say, okay, here's what you do. Here's the higher law. Here's what you do. But when you do that, then you've failed to take it to God in prayer and say, God, you can fix this. Right. I mean, you can fix it where neither one of them has to die. Right. Right. And then you put it in God's hands, and I think that's the highest law of all. Sure. Is putting your trust in God. I think that's the highest of all the laws. Right. Trust in Him. 
You know, we've, we've heard stories of men who people came after them. We're, we're talking about true saints of God, and people come after them and, and, and either get chased away because they see some giant that's sure. protecting them. We've heard these stories, or, or people firing guns at them. And, and I, I even, you know, somebody shared a story of a man that, that uh, they, this guy, had, if I remember right, he'd been a part of gangs, and he came to God, and the gangs were trying to destroy him because he used to be a part of them and left them. And, and they found him and shot him up, and, and he lived through it, and there were bullet holes in his clothes, but not in his body. Wow. Uh, I, I, I'm just telling you, we don't want to take God out of any of these equations. Right, right. So we can sit here today and discuss these things, and I can give you pat answers. But in the end, it really comes down to this. When that moment comes, let's have our minds made up. Let's put our trust in God. And let's let God lead us at that moment. Right. As to what's the right thing to do. Right. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm like you. I, if, if I lie to them and they take my life, I, I don't know what's going to happen. But at the same time, if they've got a gun to my daughter's head, how easy is it going to be to say, oh, yeah, she's, she's a Christian? Mm. Right. I, I don't know the answer to that. I know it's not going to be easy. But I know I've always strived to be above board and tell the truth. I, I, I correct myself all the time because I realize what I said didn't come out exactly the way I meant for it to. So right. I'll come back and correct myself. Well, that's not what I meant. But just right. like, was it this morning or, no, tonight, tonight during service when I made the statement, I said, you know, there were two thoughts that came to my mind. And first was, and I said, wait, wait, I don't know that it was first, but there were right. two things. Yeah. It's just the way it is because I want to make sure I'm honest about all things. I want, I don't want to take a chance on being dishonest about anything. So, you know, it would be very difficult for me to stand there and lie to protect my family. Right. But it would also be extremely difficult for me just to watch them put my family to death. So in that moment, I'm going to have to put my trust in God. I'm going to have to have some things settled in my heart and my spirit. And I'm not about to sit here and tell you what that choice is for you. Right, right. I think you need that settled in your heart and spirit. Because if you do it because the pastor said do it, that's not going to get you through either. Right. No, sir. And, and if they let you off the hook and you have to live the rest of your life in guilt, it's not going to be enough to say, well, my pastor told me. Well, my pastor told me. No, you need, you need some direction from God, and you need to feel comfortable with it. Right. Very good. Appreciate the response. All right. Any other questions or comments before we close out this episode? I think I've taken more than more time than I should have. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Bishop, and thank you to everyone who has joined us today for today's Face the Truth Live event. We are here to help you in any way we can. If there is anything we can do to help you, please reach out and contact us. Send your prayer request to prayer at olaythetruth.com. That's prayer at olaythetruth.com. If you live in the Kansas City metropolitan area and do not have a home church, we invite you to join us for our services this weekend, Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 6 p.m., Tuesday evening at 7.30 p.m. 
For those who cannot attend, we will provide a live stream on our Facebook page, our YouTube page, and our website, olathetruth.com forward slash live. Until our next Face the Truth Live event, take care and God bless.